0: Welcome to Insights for Outcomes. I'm Julia Newbold, Managing Editor at Connexus Financial, owner of Investment Magazine. I'm joined today by Noah Weisberger, who is Managing Director in the Institutional Advisory and Solutions Group at PGEM, the global investment management business of Prudential Financial. Noah has been at the IAS Group since January 2020. He began his career as a staff economist at the Council of Economic Advisers, and had 17 years on the sell side of the industry including at Sanford Bernstein and Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research. At PGM IAS, he applies his macroeconomic and policy expertise to the group's research and client advisory work that focuses on asset allocation and portfolio construction. The IAS team conducts bespoke quantitative client research that focuses on strategic asset allocation and portfolio and asset class analysis across both public and private markets. Welcome to you, Noah. How are things for you?
1: Thanks so much for having me. All is, all is good here in the, in the uh, New York area hot summer.
0: So it's an interesting time, Noah, to be doing research on global economic conditions and the drivers of markets. And so I'm really interested in our discussion today where we're going to focus on stock bond correlations and the implications of your research for CIO's asset allocation decisions. You've done research looking at the drivers of stock bond correlations across global markets, but you began by looking at the U.S. back in t- 2021. So let's start there. We see that for the last 20 years or so, the correlation been s- between stock and bond returns has been negative. So CIOs could increase equities allocations with bonds acting as a hedge. Can you talk us through the findings of this initial research on the US market with regards to the history of that stock bond correlation, why the correlation exists and what might be next?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and as you rightly point out, 20 years is is a long time in, in the career of most CIOs, most investors and market participants. You know, All we've known collectively is negative correlation, where, where stocks and bonds, as you say, hedge each other. Um, but rolling the timeline back you know, earlier in the post-war period, we have about 30 years from the mid-60s through 2000 of positive stock bond correlation and then coming out of World War II, a period of, once again, negative correlation. So it's really interesting about this Phenomena. This market phenomena is that you know I think we're conditioned a little bit to think of things in in a business cycle frequency, perhaps, or or maybe even at higher frequencies. Um, but this phenomena seems to last really, really long time. So thirty years of positive stock bond correlation from the mid sixty to two thousand, and then twenty years of negative correlation. So whatever explanations uh, you want to come up with, they, they can't really be simple uh, and unified. They're really going to be have to operate on a number of different. Uh, uh, frequencies and and levers. And if you just think about that long period of positive stock bond correlation, I mean, I think the subcontext here is that we've been through 20 years of negative stock bond correlation. What could be next? Well, I think what we're trying to tell people is what could be next is a period of positive stock bond correlation for for some of the reasons I'll discuss in a moment. But if you think about the previous long mid-60s to 2000 period of positive stock bond correlation, there is no simple, oh, that was 30 years of X, Y, and Z. It was an oil price shock. It was uh, Volcker raising rates and then uh, you know rising inflation and then falling rates and falling inflation. It was Clinton surpluses towards the end of that period and, and uh, a tech bubble towards the very end of that period. So not very easy to classify uh, that long period. And so what we've done is we've tried to link this long, slow-moving stock bond correlation uh, to macroeconomic factors, and in particular macroeconomic factors that then themselves relate back to kind of big policy elements of the policy environment. And so we think of the drivers of stock bond correlation from like the long-term thematic as a function of fiscal sustainability issues, uh, the degree of monetary independence, uh, the degree to which supply or demand is driving the economic cycle, and then a little bit about investor sentiment. And what's interesting about these kind of policy and environment type uh, framework is that it connects very naturally to what we think of as kind of the building blocks, the kind of statistical building blocks of stock-bond correlation. So we like to start with stock prices and bond prices as being discounted sums of future, or of future cash flows. It's a very basic definition. And if you write that process out, what you quickly come to uh, as an expression for stock-bond correlation is that stock-bond correlation is a function of the volatility of policy rates, the correlation of economic growth and policy rates, and the correlation of equity and bond risk premia. And those naturally connect back to the degree of fiscal sustainability, uh, the degree of monetary policy independence, supply versus demand. We think those all have natural expressions in these more quantitative uh, macroeconomic factors. And so if I were to think about what could come next, um, as we live through this negative period of negative stock bond correlation, uh, I would say positive stock bond correlation is associated with Worries about the sustainability of fiscal policy, less rules-based and less independent monetary policy, or at least concerns thereof. Uh, supply-side economic drivers and the tandem repricing of stock and bond risk a sort of a, a risk uh, a tandem move in, in in investor sentiment towards those two asset classes—and that would find expression as greater policy rate uncertainty, greater volatility of interest rates, the negative co-movement between economic growth and policy rates and the positive co-movement of stock and bond risk prices. So those are the things that we think have in the past driven stock-bond correlation, at least in the U.S., and prospectively going forward is what could push us into a positive regime from the negative one that we've become accustomed to.
0: So more recently you took that research and applied it to global markets. Did you find the same sort of factors applied in terms of the drivers of the correlation in global markets?
1: Yeah, so so it's really interesting to me – when we start to look at the the global question. Uh, So so we looked at the U.S. in conjunction with uh, a handful of developed market economies. And so much like in the U.S., we take U.S. stocks and U.S. bonds and look at that correlation over time. Uh, For any given, uh, you know, the U.K., you could take U.K. bonds and U.K. stocks in, uh, in pound sterling and look at that correlation over time, Japan, Germany, and so on. And what really strikes, struck me and kind of was counter to my own expectations was the degree to which DM stock bond correlations all move together. And more importantly, for asset allocators and CIOs, developed market stock bond correlation regimes is stock bond correlation positive or is it negative? It seems really synchronized across the developed markets. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any evidence that we can find that one country leads or lags systematically other countries. So there seems to be this simultaneous and joint determination of a developed market stock bond correlation. Um, Obviously, you know, they don't move in lockstep and there are periods of time where they differentiate themselves one from another, but to a first approximation, it really, you know, very, very easy to see in in, in the data that there seems to be a lot of coherence and synchronicity across developed market stock bond correlations. Um, And so... You know, in, in, in some ways, that kind of makes sense, right? It makes sense because uh, if you look at stock returns in isolation, there's a very large global factor that drives stock returns across developed markets. And equivalently, if you just look at sovereign bond returns in isolation, there's a very large global factor that drives um, bond returns. And so if stock re- returns are kind of global and bond returns are kind of global, it's natural to think that stock-bond correlation is therefore global. But where the tension exists, I think, is that at least in my own kind of prior thinking about the global story, was that US story in our initial work seemed to be very much predicated on policy conditions in the local economy. And yet we have this really, really strong global force that seems to be driving, as I said before, kind of a simultaneous and synchronized movement in stock bond correlations across the developed market. So it was a little bit of an eye opener to me relative to my own expectations, what, what we found initially in, in, the, in a very first look at the data there's a lot more global coherence uh than i was anticipating especially given my own priors that stock bond correlation was determined by you know fiscal policy sustainability monetary policy independence things that are very kind of local to, to, to the local economy
0: it's uh it's nice to be challenged in your own research about your own uh <laughs> predispositions. so that's a, a good outcome noah um, <clears throat> so th- these two tensions that you've outlined, the global factors, the monetary and fiscal policy, things like that, and the local factors like the investors' behavior and investor sentiment are driving uh, the correlation. Can you unpack a little bit for us the extent to how much each of these two factors are driving the correlations? You know, is it an equal, e- equal kind of driver or what does that look like?
1: Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. So. so you know, the way um, the way the data kind of break in the statistical analysis, we try to kind of measure carefully uh, global economic factors and, and, and economic policy variables. And uh, to be very candid with you, we use the U.S. as our measure of global. So when I say global, I really kind of do mean U.S. Uh, in our in our analysis. And then we try to extract the US's influence on local economic variables and, and just use that purely local leftover bit. So we looked at the impact of US policy volatility policy rate volatility, the correlation of US economic growth and rates, and the co-movement of US risk premia alongside purely local versions of those three variables. And it sounds like a complicated process, but we came out with a very kind of neat and clean answer, which is it seems to be that about two thirds of a Developed market stock bond correlation movement is due to U.S. factors, and about one third of the movement in, an, in the individual DMs developed markets uh, stock bond correlation is due to purely local uh, economic drivers. And so, you know, like like most things in life, the answer is never clean cut and easy. It's not like CIOs ought to pay attention just to the U.S., and it's not like CIOs ought to pay attention just to what's going on in their local economy. They really need to be paying attention to both local and global. Uh, developments. That said, um, you know, this is a, you know, I think that's a very clear result, is two-thirds global, one-third local. But in terms of the actual individual drivers, it's not quite black and white, it's a little bit more gray, but it seems like um, the U.S. economic factors that relate a little bit more to policy, so the volatility of interest rates, which probably has a lot to do with how predictable and rules-based monetary policy is and how sustainable fiscal policy is, And the co-movement of economic growth, U.S. economic growth and U.S. rates, which probably has to do with supply versus demand drivers, and probably has to do with the degree of rules uh, that the monetary authority is following, those two variables, the U.S. version seems to matter more. And the risk sentiment measure, that co-movement between equity and bond risk premium, the local version seems to matter a little bit more. So if I had to kind of dig in, peel apart the onion like one layer deeper, you know, two-thirds... Global determinants of of local stock bond correlation, mostly focused on U.S. policy risks. One third local determination of local stock bond correlation, a little bit more about uh, sentiment in the the local sentiment rather than than U.S. sentiment.
0: So if we kind of summarize then the most important factors in determining the stock bond correlations, it's volatility of policy rates in U.S. and local markets, but more on the U.S. side. Correlation between economic growth and interest rates, and the co movement between equity risk premium and bond risk premium. Can you give us a little bit more meat on the bone on on in each of those and expand on that for us?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and, and I'll, I'll, I'll go a little bit out of order. To me, the the co movement between economic growth and interest rates is is like just a, an amazingly fascinating like uh, summary statistic, if you will, for a lot of deep economic intuition. And, and I think to me, it captures. What's driving uh, the economy? Now, if you think back to, your, to, to, to you know, an intermediate or introductory economics class, is it a shift in the supply curve or a shift in the demand curve? Is the monetary authority trying to surprise the economy with, with the degree to which they're being overly easy or overly tight? Or is the monetary authority responding to the strength of the weakness of the, of the overall economic uh, environment? And so none of this, just as an aside, none of this is about the level of interest rates or the level of inflation. In our framework, it's all about the drivers of and the co-movements of. And I think there's a very, very important distinction. And so in a world where demand is driving the economy, and so greater demand pushes up prices, pushes up inflation, pushes up interest rates, in a world in which growth starts to accelerate and so the Fed needs to raise rates in response, that's a world where you have positive uh, correlation between economic growth and interest rates and a world where you have negative um, stock bond correlation. And that says, as I said, a function a little bit about the predictability of monetary policy. So think of the Fed, if they're following a Taylor rule, let's say, where they're concerned about unemployment and inflation, if they are independent of fiscal policy considerations, that's probably what you get. Um, Secondarily, I would put the volatility of interest rates as as pretty intuitive. And there, to the extent that we're concerned about the forward outlook uh, in terms of fiscal sustainability and the ability to uh, maintain, debt to GDP or even pay down debt to GDP. And to the extent that we know what policy is going to look like in the future, because the monetary policy authority is predictable and acting in a rules-based way, that leads to muted policy rate volatility and probably to negative stock buying correlation. Conversely, if we're worried about the sustainability of fiscal policy, if we're worried about the independence of monetary policy and supply shocks or uh, a, a Fed that's behind the curve and trying to catch up those were all kind of pushing the positive stock-bond correlation direction. And in terms of risk sentiment, I think the intuition is pretty pretty clear, which is if we're repricing risks wholesale in an economy, that would tend to move risk prices together. Um, for instance, uh, you know, in the current environment, if, you know, there's a little bit of a reverse causality story there too, perhaps, which is if we realize that the, the, the policy factors are leaning towards a positive stock-bond correlation, well, then both bonds and stocks look a lot riskier than they have in the past, and so maybe we need to lower the price of those assets, increase the risk premium, and then the forward return will compensate you for that incremental risk. So when we're re-rating risks, that tends to induce positive correlation in risk premium and positive correlation in reinforced positive correlation in, in stock and bond returns themselves. But if we're talking about risk on, risk off, like I'm selling my stocks, I'm buying my bonds because I'm worried about something, or whipsaw, you know, all of a sudden I get a lot more comfortable with the outlook and I sell my bonds and buy stocks, that's a negative. Uh, stock bond correlation world, and we think that that sentiment variable is a little bit more locally driven than it is uh, globally or U.S. driven.
0: So we've talked a lot about the drivers of the correlation, and you touched on it, a, you know, just a little bit there. Um, I'm interested now in shifting the conversation to to what it would take to actually see a shift in the stock bond correlation. So can you give us a little bit more about that? I know you just mentioned it a, a little bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So so one thing to say is a caveat you know in, in our in our formal research um, what we look at is uh, is a long dated correlation measure so it's 5 years it's centered so it's somewhat backward looking and so you won't know for a while that is going to permanently uh sorry it's going to shift from negative to positive but high, on a higher frequency basis it does seem as if we're starting to get some evidence that stocks and bonds have, have been moving in tandem for about the last six nine months, maybe a little bit longer than that, um, and I don't think it's a you know I, th- I think you can connect that back to some of the de- excuse me the debates that are swirling currently right we we have uh, a lot of fiscal spending in the U S that sort of heightened concerns about fiscal sustainability a lot of the conversation a year ago or eighteen months ago was about you know the balance between growth and interest rates and if that leads to a sustainable path or an unsustainable one and then we spend more and maybe those risks. Become the balance of risk shifts there. There's certainly a lot of debate whether or not we're experiencing demand-driven inflation, or if there's a supply-side component. to that. And if supply side is driving things, uh, it also looks uh, a, a little bit different. And so, those are some of the things that I think are uh, you know square on the radar screen. You know, we're not uh, you know we're not making forecasts here, but we are trying to put on people's dashboards, if you will, the the sorts of issues that they should be paying attention to to evaluate. Uh, stock bond correlation.
0: So I know I know you don't want to make predictions, but uh, uh, is it fair to say then that we, you know, given these findings, are facing or about to face a different world in terms of the stock bond correlations?
1: I, I think there's an argument to be made that the risks have definitely the balance of risks has has shifted, and and I think the other message that we want want to leave leave uh, uh, investors with is a, as I said before, what would be the risk indicators uh, or the policy indicators that would make you start to think about this world. And the second really important part of that conversation is what what does that world look like, right? So how different is a positive stock bond correlation from an asset allocator, a positive stock bond correlation world for an asset allocator relative to a negative stock bond correlation world? So I think those are the two important components here. One, what should be on, on, on the radar screen for evaluating the balance of risks? And two, what would that new world look like should we find ourselves in a positive stock bond coalition world?
0: So we'll, so we'll get to that in a minute in terms of what that would look like. But sort of before we get to that, how do you think CIOs should be approaching this? So, you know, assuming we are about to face or facing a different world in terms of the correlations, how costly is it when we shift into that different correlation environment and, and how should CIOs be behaving given that they don't know the future?
1: Right, but well, I think I think one thing is important to, to bear in mind, which is that um, this ends up being, for, from the perspective of a balanced portfolio, a much more volatile world, um, and that means that off off path outcomes, your know, sort of tail outcomes and extreme events are larger, are more damaging, and some of the risk metrics that used to be achievable, you know, a, a certain level of portfolio volatility or a certain target sharp ratio, they may not they just may not be achievable when you don't have that extra buffer coming from negative correlation reducing volatility of the portfolio. You just don't have that anymore. And so um, we think that's a really important message as for you know what what actions can you take? Um, you know, the the risk is that you don't want to get over your skis in in one direction or another. And so one of the things that we've been looking at is can you without being able to forecast correlation, uh, should you assume it's always negative? Should you assume it's always positive? Or should you take a more agnostic approach? And what would the damage be uh, uh, from each one of those approaches relative to the other ones?
0: And so if we do move into that positive correlation world, you have mentioned that investors should be aware that there's certain sharp ratios or volatility levels that aren't achievable. In practical terms, does that mean, you know, re-looking at their return targets? Does it mean looking at different uh, defensive assets? You know, what does it actually mean in terms of yeah. of the allocations?
1: Yep. So let me uh, uh, pick up on the on the second thing you said first, then back to the first, which is the inclusion of other assets in the portfolio. So we've looked at this a little bit. Um, a couple of things. You know, we're talking sort the, of the, the, the quest we're on in, when you frame the question that way is in a world where Bonds are no longer a natural hedge to stocks. Is there another asset out there that we think would be could be added to the portfolio, replacing or you know, filling out the portfolio to replace that hedging job that, that bonds used to do? And there we've been, you know, the answer kind of is, unfortunately, we don't really think that there's an asset that, that, that jumps out at us that really has the right characteristics. And, and I'll kind of go through a couple candidates. The first is, if... From the perspective of a U.S. investor, if U.S. bonds don't hedge U.S. equities, um, would uh, would U.S. dollar developed market bonds be a hedge for for, for U.S. stocks? In other words, if, if U.S. bonds don't do it, is there another developed market bond that you put in the portfolio? And the answer, intuitively, I think from the way we've been talking about things today, no. You know, developed market bonds look too similar for one to be a hedge when 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 U.S. bonds are not. EM bonds also don't offer those hedging properties the way uh, a u.s bond would um, and then of course there's a the commodity complex a lot of people look at the commodity complex as an inflation hedge but when you kind of condition on when bonds are not a hedge to u.s stocks are commodities a reliable hedge for u.s stocks the answer is kind of middling on the one hand yes commodities are mildly negatively correlated with u.s stocks when u.s bonds are not so when you need when you don't have a bond hedge Maybe you have a modest hedge from commodities, uh, that said, commodities are at a much higher volatility uh, than bonds. So do you really want to replace like a seven vol asset uh, to hedge your equity risk with a twenty or thirty vol asset when the degree of hedging is kind of modest so I don't know that there's an obvious asset to add to the portfolio to try to replace um, to try to replace the bond hedge um, you know that said, I think really the heart of the issue is kind of what you what you said at the outset of that question, which is, you know, how should you think about return targets? How should you think about volatility targets? And here's the trade-off that, that investors are going to face. You can maintain your return target, but it's going to be achieved at a higher volatility. So if you have a risk manager and you have a firm ceiling, a, a firm volatility ceiling, you're going to be bumping into that ceiling a lot more often in a positive correlation world than you would otherwise. And that can, you know, sort of a little bit about a risk management and, and, and a risk tolerance question. Alternatively, you know, you know, and, and you may need to do that. If you if you need to achieve a certain return, it may be worth increasing the, the risk budget to do that. Alternatively, if the risk budget is really fixed and firm, you may need to accept a lower return in order to maintain that that level of, of risk in the portfolio. So it's like the canonical risk reward trade-off, you know, how you respond a little bit depends on your objectives and uh and, and the purpose of, of those sorts of constraints on the investment process, but I think that's what we're trying to highlight to investors: that if we go into a positive stock bond correlation world and do the planning now and do the thinking now, um, what's the set of reasonable outcomes to expect for this portfolio? What are the risk scenarios? You now, drawdowns will be deeper, um, tail events will be more damaging. The, 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 those sorts of things are going to be true. And so, how do you want to uh, react um, in the, in that kind of framework?
0: And, you know, the evidence seems to suggest that, you know, whatever environment it is, a positive or negative correlation persists for some time. Can we expect that if we do move into that positive correlation environment that it will be, you know, a decade or two rather than a, a short period of time?
1: Right. So, so I'm not sure how to answer that question with, with, um, with any degree of like certainty, but we, we don't have no history. We have 50, 50 plus years of U.S. history. Uh, and, and the kind of the deep irony of stock bond correlation is that it doesn't change until it does, and then it persists. And so, uh, you know, driving in the rearview mirror, as they say, I think a shift in correlation to positive territory would likely be persistent. And why would that be? It would be because it's mostly about, you know, kind of investor expectations about policymaking, uh, and that's a really slow-moving Object And so I would say that if we start to get evidence of a positive stock bond correlation, that's probably the world that we live in for some time. Now, that said, I've heard people argue that, you know, what seems to be persistent supply-driven inflation is really just transitory. The Fed will quickly get back to a point where they are no longer perceived as being behind the curve, but back to their rule-based mandate, if you will. And so maybe this is just a moment in time, but history suggests that these moments in time really do persist.
0: So, Noah, the reason you embarked on this research in the first place is to look at the assumptions that investors make and challenge those in terms of how they might change and whether those assumptions still hold true. What's next on the research agenda in terms of challenging investor assumptions and and delving into that in some depth?
1: Yeah. So, so most immediately, uh, it's to look at the optimal response to such a shift in correlation, you know dig a little bit more deeper to other hedging options and think through um, as, as granularly as we can about, about what that would look like. What would an optimal portfolio look like for different classes of investors? Um, And, you know, how right do you need to be about correlation to be comfortable to make that call or maybe, you know, take an agnostic approach um, as the data reveal itself is not too costly. So we're trying to calibrate uh, some of those immediate, uh, you know, continuation on the same thing. Some of those immediate questions that follow up naturally, As you've been asking uh, from this research. And then more broadly, I think that the stock bond correlation question kind of fits in nicely with the broader research we do in the IAS group, uh, with a a big focus, as you said at the very, very top of our conversation, on portfolio construction questions with both liquid and illiquid assets. So, how does the interaction between a shift in correlation in the public part of your market, uh, a public market part of your portfolio, perhaps interact with the decisions you would then need to make on the private side? especially in the context of, of the allocations we've seen and the shift in allocations we've seen on the private side. And that will kind of dovetail nicely with, with other streams of research um, that, that are ongoing at IAS, uh, uh, as we, uh, already ongoing at IAS.
0: So I think it's really important research for, for investors and, and for CIOs as they're looking to their asset allocation. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Noah. Thank you so much for your time.
1: It's been my pleasure and thank you so much for your time as well.